This is a, a, a cute little story about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Well, what's that about? Well, that's about a little blonde who goes into the woods and gets lost. Finally, she comes to a house. She knocks on the door, but no one is home. So what does she do? Well, she commits an act of breaking and entry. Uh, she goes in and performs petty vandalism on other people's property, ends up consuming property that isn't hers, and finally gets into a bed that isn't hers and uh, uh, falls asleep. Well, presently, the owners come home. Now, incidentally, you're going to find this true not only in juvenile literature, but in most adult literature. The owners of anything are cast in the role of villains, always. In this case, <laughs> the uh, owners are three bears. Welcome to the mind of Robert Lefebvre, quite possibly the most influential libertarian thinker you've never heard of. In the mid-20th century, Lefebvre created a small mountain academy just north of Colorado Springs called the Freedom School. The school and his teachings helped shape the minds of some of the most powerful men in American industry and politics, not the least of which are Charles and David Koch, aka the Koch brothers, two of the wealthiest men in the world. In half a mile, turn left onto Emily Griffith Center Way. It's been more than 60 years since Robert Lefebvre established the Freedom School here in the foothills of the Rampart Range of the Rocky Mountains. We've come to see what, if anything, is left of Lefebvre's nearly forgotten Freedom School campus. Hey, there he is. I'm Jolie. I'm Noel. Nice to meet you, Noel. Nice to meet you. Hi, Marga. Nice to meet you. Welcome, guys. Did you find it okay? During its heyday in the 1950s and 60s, the Freedom School campus was a rustic outpost in the Cold War battle of ideas, a kind of well-appointed capitalist boot camp. Today, it's a youth outdoor education camp for Douglas County School District. A lot has changed since the Freedom School days when executives, intellectuals, college kids, and middle managers from around the country spent their days here contemplating the true meaning of liberty in the setting of a woodsy dude ranch. The Freedom School is in Colorado, about halfway between Colorado Springs and Denver. It nestles in a setting of tall Douglas firs in the foothills of the Rampart Range of the Rockies. The school buildings are constructed of logs which provide an early American charm and atmosphere. The 320-acre campus has an elevation of 7,000 feet, and the heavily wooded hills rise sharply as one proceeds from one building to the next. It is in this sylvan setting, away from normal distractions, that the student can pursue a course of fascinating study. As the student probes human action philosophically, historically, economically, politically, ethically, and morally, he will be stirred as he sees the importance of private ownership of property and its relation to liberty he will find no conflict between highest moral beliefs and economic understanding in a modern intelligent philosophy of individualism. From the Freedom School Prospectus, 1962. Today, amid the whirs of hummingbirds and screams of summer campers, it's hard to imagine that some of the world's most prominent libertarian and free market luminaries once walked these grounds. Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode of Wish We Were Here, we look into the mostly forgotten history of the Freedom School and its founder, Robert Lefebvre. Assuming someone is listening and can't 
see this space? How would you describe this piece of property? Beautiful. <laughs> um, we, we sit in a canyon, a little box canyon, uh, right as the front range starts to pop, pop up in the Rampart Range. Um, and we're surrounded on both the south and the north side uh, by sloping hills, surrounded by Douglas fir, pine, uh, choke cherry, oak, all different types of trees. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. And you can actually hear uh, the waters were about the headwaters of East Plum Creek. So you can hear that in the distance as well. It's beautiful. Jolie Jones is the director of the Douglas County School District's Stone Canyon Outdoor Adventures Camp, which operates on the old Freedom School campus. With cabins, a ropes course, an archery range, a zip line, and a creek running through the woods, it's the epitome of a summer camp out west. Much to our surprise, the old cabins that once housed the Freedom School are still largely intact. Like, can you describe the building style? Um, it's a, a classic kind of log cabin. Um, it's got uh, concrete cheeking and daubing with it. Um, that's about the extent of what I know about it. <laughs> Truly like if you were to build a Lincoln log cabin. Yeah. <laughs> I've never built anything and if I was going to build a Lincoln log cabin it might kind of look like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of the cabins have been renovated as dormitories. Others have been unused for years. Do you guys want to see it downstairs? Or? Sure. Yeah. Cobwebs and the smell of mildew are just some of the obvious signs of neglect. Still, almost 50 years since the Freedom School shut down, much of the visible history of the campus is still intact. Not only are the Lincoln Log-style buildings still standing, but a lot of the historical signage remains in place. So this is um, Liberty Lodge, and you can actually see the main log above the fireplace has got Liberty uh, carved into it on top of that log are the signatures of Robert Lefebvre and the other founders from that first summer that they were here during, uh, running the Freedom School. Robert Lefebvre was born on Friday, October 13th, 1911 in Gooding, Idaho. So who is Robert Lefebvre? Robert Lefebvre is, he's, he's a strange character from a different, a different era in America. He's basically like a, a hick huckster fascist. <laughs> I don't know how else to really put it. Kind of like a used car salesman who made his money um, as a as an informant for J. Edgar Hoover um, uh, in a fascist cult in the 1930s and 40s, and then eventually kind of peddling free market extremism to to uh, corporate leaders and, and and to America. This is journalist Mark Ames. He's written for The Nation, been a regular guest on MSNBC and while living in Moscow, founded the controversial English-language newspaper, The Exile. In 2013, he wrote a long article about Lefebvre for the magazine NSFW Corp. According to Ames, Lefebvre was a kind of natural-born snake oil salesman. He came from sort of a, a broken home. His, his father uh, abandoned the family when he was young. Um, during the Great Depression, Lefebvre himself abandoned his own family and child joined up with his father. They were all out of work and they, they embarked on some kind of scheme driving around the Midwest, ripping off, you know, gullible housewives basically. And then their farms by, by getting deposits from them and promising them these beautiful picture frames. And they just, they never delivered them. Ames says that Lefebvre and his father traveled West across the country, but eventually parted ways. 
Lefebvre, who dreamed of becoming an actor or broadcaster, went on to Los Angeles alone. He didn't really get anywhere. He wound up taking his money and getting that stolen from him by other hucksters in Hollywood. And he was about to commit suicide when his father, who was basically a street person by this time, this is about 32, 33, um, gave him some talk. And these two homeless people were sitting there talking about how evil big government is, how America needs to stay on the gold standard. This is all according to Bob Lefebvre's own um, memoirs. So anyway, Lefebvre um, decides that, you know, yeah, FDR and going off the gold standard and and, uh, taxing the producers is the most evil thing ever. And so he winds up getting a job in one of um, FDR's, you know, major works programs, of course, as all these guys did. Lefebvre managed to find his way into the radio business after all. Through a New Deal program, he was hired as an engineer at a radio station in Minneapolis and eventually trained as an announcer. It was there, in the late 30s, says Ames, that Lefebvre first acquired a taste for anti-union politics. Radio workers around the country were unionizing at the time, but Lefebvre, who was already a strong believer in the rights of owners to do as they wished with their property, took a stand against the union. He decides, Lefebvre, that... um you know, he wants to side with his boss. And uh, so he's a strike breaker. His boss basically says, I don't know what you're doing. We're going to sign a union contract. So Lefebvre looks for somebody to validate himself. And what he does, he winds up hooking up with one of this radio station sponsors. And it's called the Mighty I Am Colt. Mighty I Am Present, the name, love, wisdom, and power which thou art, I charge this room, this end, and master consciousness, sign present. In the name, love, wisdom, and power which thou art, to charge the consciousness of each one here with the ascended master, present, self, luminous, intelligent, substance, and power of light. That goes the mighty I Am movement, also known as the I Am activity, was a popular American quasi-religion founded in the early 30s by a man named Guy Ballard. Ballard was a self-proclaimed mystic who said he'd had a vision for the movement while hiking on Mount Shasta. This atmosphere in this room is cleansed and purified and will remain so. And there will be no more sleepiness or confusion here. So what, what Fowler did was he basically ripped off a, a bunch of already existing kind of spiritualist movements like Theosophy and the Rosicrucians. He basically took all of their stuff and repackaged it as his own, as this great I am movement. And it's one of those religions where it's it's hard to tell, you know, where the religion ends and the pyramid scheme begins. This is Will Schultz, a graduate student in history at Princeton University. He's working on a dissertation about the political and religious history of Colorado Springs. It was very much like, okay, you send us X amount of money and we will reveal the secrets of the universe. Uh, to you uh, on the installment plan. Here's Brian Doherty, senior editor for Reason Magazine and author of Radicals for Capitalism, a freewheeling history of the modern American libertarian movement. You know, they had a leader who claimed that he was receiving, you know, ethereal messages from uh, the great ascended masters of history. Uh, At certain points, he claimed to be a reincarnation of George Washington. They mixed a sort of almost... Eastern uh, kind of spirituality with with a very radical American patriotism. They also happen to be very pro-fascist and anti-communist. This is journalist Mark Ames again. 
He says Robert Lefebvre saw the I Am movement as a place where his budding anti-union, anti-government philosophy would be accepted. He reached out to Ballard directly around the time that his co-workers were fighting to unionize the radio station. So Lefebvre, writing from his radio station, writes to Guy Ballard and said, you know, I was a union buster. Did I do the right thing? And Ballard said, yes, you did. Unions are black magic evil. Um, you know, everybody should be able to do what they want with their property. Taxes are evil. So Lefebvre, you know, his eyes are spinning and he joins this cult and he starts traveling around the country with this cult. And this cult starts getting crazier and crazier as World War II approaches and begins. And the cult is openly calling for the deaths of, of FDR and his wife. And they, they lead these huge chants um, calling for the destruction of their souls, of, of FDR's soul and his wife's soul, and calling for, you know, help for the, for the, for the Axis powers. As time went on, Lefebvre grew close to Guy Ballard and his wife Edna. He introduced them at IAM events around the country and eventually co-wrote a book with Guy, Will Schultz again. The book that he wrote for the IAM movement, it had the very catchy title of At the Request of St. Germain, the Great Master, Lord of the Seventh Ray. So, a little esoteric there, but it was basically a, a testament, supposedly, from Saint Germain, who was a, a kind of occult mystic figure who was uh, the inspiration for the I Am movement. After Guy Ballard died in 1939, his wife Edna and son Donald took over the movement. Lefebvre remained a senior figure in the organization. Eventually, he wrote another book called I Am, America's Destiny, in which he seems to make his own claims to mystical authority. He claimed that he drove across the country for 25 minutes with his eyes closed while his soul was floating above Mount Shasta in California with uh, Saint Germain, who's some like Illuminati, you know, ghost from, from, I mean, it's so crazy, I can't tell you. Lefebvre's involvement with the IM movement came to a screeching halt in the early 40s, when members of IM were indicted by the FBI on numerous counts of mail fraud. During the ensuing legal battle, Lefebvre cooperated with the FBI, and charges against him were ultimately dropped. The Ballards went to prison, and Lefebvre went to war. He enlisted in 1942 and served in the Army until the end of World War II. After the war, he made his way back to California, where he tried his hand in the real estate market. A streak of strange deals culminated in Lefebvre taking possession of Falcon Lair, the lavish Beverly Hills estate of silent film superstar Rudolph Valentino. By 1950, Lefebvre again found himself on the wrong end of a fraud indictment, this time for his involvement in a cult scheme related to Falcon Lair. Again, he turned to the FBI. And this is when Lefebvre's life takes a huge turn for the better. So they, the FBI helped set him up in Florida and, and helped set him up with his own TV show which, and radio show, which are going to promote um, uh, McCarthy and promote J. Edgar Hoover as, as the saviors of America. 
McCarthy-era anti-communist fervor had reached a fever pitch in America, and Lefebvre was eager to jump in from his new post in the media. So Lefebvre starts persecuting everybody he can as a Red. He even persecutes the Girl Scouts of America. He, he wages this big campaign, which goes national, and he says the Girl Scouts handbook has something like 45 or 50 instances of subversive anti-Americanism in it. And this seems funny at first and crazy, And but then the House Un-American Activities Committee drags a bunch of Girl Scouts before them and starts destroying their lives. And, and one of the troop leaders winds up actually, you know, uh, having her life destroyed because she refuses to, to, to say what her political affiliations are and refuses to acknowledge, you know, that this is impossible. So, so a few lives are destroyed, but Lefay's life, Lefay suddenly hits, you know, um, the big time. The year was 1954. Lefebvre's attack on the Girl Scouts had earned him notoriety on the national stage, and he was ready to build on that newfound stature in whatever ways he could. He became involved with various far-right-wing political organizations, like Merwin K. Hart's National Economic Council. He ran unsuccessfully for Congress on an anti-communist, anti-labor platform. According to Ames, Lefebvre's willingness to play ideological attack dog for whichever right-wing individual or group might hire him made him a rare breed during the post-New Deal era. He was an ideologue with a salesman's silver tongue. Lefebvre's biggest break came when he was tapped by a controversial newspaper publisher named R.C. Hoyles. Here's historian Will Schultz. Hoyles was, he started out as a newspaper publisher in Ohio, uh, Mansfield, Ohio, I believe. And uh, that was during the 1920s. But even then, he was a very controversial figure known for his you know, extreme libertarianism, uh, attacking not just labor, but uh, all kinds of government intervention. He left Ohio after someone bombed his house and blew the front porch off. Which, so you see, he definitely attracted a little, bit of, a little bit of controversy. Like many others with anti-government sympathies at the time, Hoyles made his way to Southern California after World War II. And from there, he set up this network of what he called the Freedom Newspapers, uh, a chain of newspapers often in places throughout the West, um, Santa Ana, California, a couple in Texas, a few in New Mexico, and the sort of crown jewel, the Gazette Telegraph in Colorado Springs. When Hoyles purchased the Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph in 1946, he made a big splash in the Sleepy Mountain community. Many local readers balked at the radical free market ideas espoused by the paper's new editorial board. All taxation is theft. Uh, all forms of government, uh, including you know, building roads, public education, should be done away with. He referred to uh, to public teachers as prostitutes, which uh, the public teachers were not all that enthusiastic about. And uh, he even went to the point of arguing that the military should be disbanded and replaced with a a defense force sustained by private contributions. And beyond that, within months of acquiring the paper, Hoyles put his anti-labor philosophy into practice. 
He went to battle with the employees who belonged to the International Typographers Union. Hoyle set out to break that union, and in 1947, uh, he succeeded in doing so. He uh, shut down negotiations with the union, locked them out, and then after a few days started running the newspaper again, this time run by strike breakers. And all of the employees from the ITU went off and formed a new newspaper, uh, which was the Free Press, the Colorado Springs Free Press, which right from the start uh, portrayed itself as the anti-Hoyles and the anti-Gazette Telegraph. It was amidst this politically polarized climate that Hoyles drafted Robert Lefebvre to work for the paper's editorial board. In 1954, Lefebvre moved with his wife and son to Colorado Springs. He wrote opinion pieces for the paper, and together with Hoyles, he began to plot the next phase of his career. In 1955, with the small inheritance he received from his mother's estate, Lefebvre purchased several hundred acres of property just 20 miles north of Colorado Springs. Here, in these rustic foothills at the base of the Rampart Range on the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains, Lefebvre and Hoyles envisioned a home for their ideas. So, you know, you got to understand this is the height of the Cold War when American Cold War fighters and thinkers and planners are also very fixated on the national security state level, on the battle of ideas. And they're very worried that communism is a very attractive idea and that nobody's really passionate about capitalism and laissez-faire at that time. And so Freedom School is one of these projects. And what it really is set up to do is they want to create an executive level indoctrination camp. So this will be an extreme laissez-faire indoctrination camp for sons, basically men, you know, sons of corporate executives or, you know, young corporate executives in in a kind of Marxism-Leninism for capitalism. Look to the West for freedom, nestled in the Rockies. The Freedom School, America's only school dedicated to freedom. The Freedom School seeks to equip the individual with the proper intellectual approach for combating false ideas. So equipped, he is able to stand firm in the sea of confusion, of welfareism, and mediocrity. The Freedom School identifies and clarifies the struggle between freedom and slavery. From a Freedom School brochure in 1962. This is Wish We Were Here from KRCC. Stay with us. From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we're telling the story of the Freedom School, a short-lived libertarian academy in the mountains just north of Colorado Springs. It was founded in the mid-1950s by ultra-conservative newspaper magnate R.C. Hoyles and his smooth-talking right-hand man, Robert Lefebvre. 
Lefebvre's vision for the Freedom School was a grand one. By 1956, when he and Hoyle set to work on the school, Lefebvre had been active in conservative causes for many years. He'd been a strikebreaker, an anti-communist crusader, and an outspoken media personality on radio, TV, and in his editorials for the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph. But according to historian Will Schultz, Lefebvre saw the Freedom School as a place where he could do more, where he could build a movement and train people in the anti-government ideas that he was now calling the Freedom Philosophy. For him, the definition of freedom was all about individual actualization and individual choice. He emphasized over and over again that uh, a person must be free to choose their own path, totally free of coercion. So sometimes he described this philosophy as voluntarism, the idea that nothing is coerced, everything that you do is, is voluntary. Indeed, Lefebvre hoped the campus itself would embody his freedom philosophy. Soon after he purchased the property, Lefebvre and his family moved in, along with three women from his I Am movement and Falcon's Lair days, who seemed to have been devotees, if not lovers. They fixed up existing cabins left by the previous owners, and they soon set to work building dorms and teaching facilities, all in the log cabin style. According to a written history and assessment of the property compiled by architect Barbara Darden, all the logs used in the Freedom School cabins were harvested by hand from the nearby National Forest. There was a kind of homesteading spirit in the early days, and the Western setting would soon become an important part of the school's identity. Other than on graduation night when open house is held, Western clothes are preferable. Students who like horseback riding are encouraged to bring at least one pair of jeans. Sturdy shoes which give support to ankles are necessary if you're interested in either riding or hiking. Comfort and ease are emphasized with informality a keynote. From the Freedom School Prospectus, 1963. There was a good deal of talk in the advertisements for the Freedom School and then for Rampart College about the landscape with an emphasis on the sort of rugged individualism, as you might expect. The idea that, you know, here we are separated from uh, the hands of the government. Here people can be their own. They can live their life as they choose to do it. And you too can get out there and relive this kind of pioneer spirit you know, dress up as a cowboy, go horseback riding, go and get out in nature. The plan for the campus was relatively straightforward. It wasn't a full-fledged school, per se, but more like a scholarly summer camp. Executives, middle managers, and students on summer vacation were its target demographic, and they could enroll in one- or two-week-long sessions to learn the principles of liberty and the virtues of private ownership of property. According to historian Will Schultz, Lefebvre had lofty philosophical ambitions for the school. But in its early days, the courses served a more pragmatic purpose. Basically, educating businessmen and executives in why it's okay for them to break unions and to pay low wages and to try to fight back against government regulation. So rather than being a kind of philosophical mecca, 
from the 1950s to the early 1960s, it was sort of a boot camp for um, for executives and for small businessmen. But as the years went by, the reputation of the school grew, and it began to attract teachers and students looking to steep themselves in the nascent intellectual tradition of libertarianism. Good facilities, good faculty, up in the mountains. It's sort of like, you know, what's wrong with this picture? I mean, it was, it was a very nice place to spend the summer. This is George Vredenberg, retired executive vice president of global and strategic policy for AOL Time Warner. In the early 60s, he was a teenager living in Colorado Springs. He dated Penny Hoyles, R.C. Hoyles' granddaughter, and found out about the Freedom School from her father, R.C.'s son, Harry Hoyles. He uh, took me a bit under his wing uh, and said, I really want to you know, uh, pay for your tuition to go to the Freedom School. And so I was there, I think, between my junior and senior year in high school. Vredenberg remembers the Freedom School as an intellectually rigorous environment, a place where people took the ideas of individualism and liberty seriously. A deep distrust of government, being in the personal lives of individuals, uh, and a deep distrust of government's ability to contribute anything positive to an economy, uh, so that one uh, was regarded uh, the taking of your money and taxes, uh, the equivalent of some mandatory restriction on personal freedom. So um, it was very much a hostility to either the efficacy or appropriateness of government intervention in personal lives or in your economic life. Lefebvre walked his talk beyond the classroom, too, says Vredenberg. Uh, there was absolutely no constraints on drinking, uh, for example. And, you know, you had some underage kids there. You had kids uh, below the 18-year-old or whatever it was at the time, 18 or 21, probably. So there wasn't any constraint on that. One incident I remember, and I still remember it to this day, was I got, uh, for the first time in my life, so totally drunk I was just so, I was, uh, it, it was a very unattractive uh, uh, night and scene. In a class photo in the 1962 Freedom School Annual, taken the morning after his bender, Vredenberg, hungover, can be seen alongside his 15 button-down classmates in a natty, madman-style suit, a skinny tie, and a pair of dark Ray-Ban sunglasses. To this day, I don't like beer. To paraphrase a line from Spider-Man, with great freedom comes great responsibility. And the implied expectation at the Freedom School was that the truly free individual makes responsible, moral, and often conservative decisions in the end. To put it another way, a truly free individual ought to govern himself. There was very much a spirit of um, expectation but no mandates on dress codes or fraternization or drinking or anything like that. So they did try to embody uh, in the way they managed, in quotes, uh, the school, um, uh, the spirit of, uh, you know, a libertarian spirit. Butler Schaefer also went to the Freedom School in the early 60s. A young lawyer at the time, Schaefer had already been dabbling in the ideas of the libertarian movement prior to his arrival. He says he found a kindred spirit in Robert Lefebvre. There was just a lot of, of inquiry, a lot of questioning going on in my mind as to, you know, what is the best way in which you know, societies could operate. And it seemed to me that the ones that Lefebvre had, particularly with his emphasis on property, the role of private property, that, uh, you know, peace consists of just leaving other people alone with respect to their own lives, with respect to the things that 
other things that they own, which kind of came out of John Locke's philosophy. Um, and it just it just made sense. It's like, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I am. According to Schaefer, this was before anyone was actually calling themselves libertarians. The so-called libertarian movement was just a loose association of people interested in the idea of radical individualism and the free market theories of economists like Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises, and Friedrich Hayek. Why couldn't the role of the justice maker come at the end of a process by taking from someone who has more than he needs for the purpose of satisfying somebody who has less than he needs. Because if he knows that part of his income is going to be taken from him, there's no inducement for him to do that particular thing. If this I is Friedrich Hayek speaking with conservative thinker and talk show host William F. Buckley on his show Firing Line in 1977. A student of Ludwig von Mises and the tradition of what is loosely called the Austrian School of Economics, Hayek was the author of the deeply influential book The Road to Serfdom. In it, he argues against socialist or government-controlled economic policies, like those of the New Deal that President Franklin Roosevelt enacted during the Great Depression. Well, but in point of fact, um, a great many people who are taxed at the two-thirds rate continue to be very productive. Uh, well, I doubt whether they are as productive as they could be. Now here's Milton Friedman, professor of economics at the University of Chicago, on the Phil Donahue show in 1979. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear, that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems to Friedman, Hayek, von Mises, and other economists associated with the Austrian and Chicago schools shared a belief that unregulated markets, rather than government, were the best means of distributing resources and maximizing economic efficiency for the greatest benefit of society. Today, long after Reaganomics and NAFTA, these ideas can seem relatively mainstream. But as Butler Schaefer notes, the political events and social upheaval beginning in the United States during the late 50s and early 60s made the culture ripe for all kinds of new ideas on the left and the right. It was the 60s, and uh, the, there was an anti-war movement, the, um, the black civil rights movement, the feminist movement, and the libertarians, or what became libertarians, uh, were in on it too. Brian Doherty, senior editor at Reason Magazine and author of the book Radicals for Capitalism, says the people associated with the libertarian movement in the 50s and early 60s were seen as political outsiders, even on the right. The thinkers in this milieu blended a staunchly anti-government, anti-tax stance with more traditionally liberal positions on social issues and Cold War-era military interventionism. But even within this world, Robert Lefebvre's ideas were especially radical. Yeah, he, he believed it was essentially that it was wrong uh, to use force against anyone uh, for pretty much any reason. And, and in his view, even the most limited government um, required the use of force, if only because it uh, gained its uh, income through taxation, right? He believed, you know, you're required to pay taxes. You may think it's voluntary, the government call it voluntary, but in fact, if you don't pay your taxes, you know, you will likely eventually end up in jail. He took this notion that, that the use of force was morally illegitimate to areas that even lots of other libertarians thought were kind of nutty. A particularly colorful example of Lefebvre's, which sort of highlights 
the radicalism of his uh, belief in not using force is that if uh, if someone attacked you, right, a thief attacked you and, and tied you up, uh, you know, to, to keep you uh, out of the way, uh, say, while he robbed your house, if the ropes that he used were his ropes, his property and not yours, it would be morally impermissible for you to destroy those ropes because they weren't yours. In some regards, says Doherty, he may not have even fit in on the right at all. Although Lefebvre did not like the term, uh, most people would call him an anarchist because he did not believe that there was any moral justification for a state. In many ways, Ayn Rand, author of the seminal libertarian novels The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, was moderate by comparison. For as anti-government as she was, she still believed the state was necessary for police and military protection. Here she is in an interview with Mike Wallace in 1959. The powers of government are strictly limited. They will have no right to initiate force or compulsion against any citizen except a criminal. Uh, Those who have initiated force will be punished by force, and that is the only proper function of government. Lefebvre made no such allowances. So if you would like to cut down on crime, and I know of no way to create a perfect situation, may I suggest that you turn to the market and not to government and hire your own protectors and, and buy your own protective devices and use them there. Government, as it works out, is not efficient at anything. And the less we have of it, the better off we're going to be. Thank you. Lefebvre believed that the foundational economic principles put forth by von Mises, Hayek, and Friedman were incredibly powerful. For him, the right combination of market deregulation and respect for private property could usher humanity into a new age of peace and happiness. Here's Brian Doherty. There is a, a glorious moral vision of a world free from force and violence, and Lefebvre sold that in a unified way, and it, it was very exciting and inspiring to the, the people who encountered it. By most accounts, Lefebvre was a magnetic figure. Here's historian Will Schultz. A couple people have noted that Lefebvre, you kind of had to meet him in person. His ideas were kind of turgid and confusing when written down, but apparently when he talked to him, he was tremendously charismatic. If Lefebvre had learned anything from the IM movement, it was the influence of personality and the importance of direct interaction. Here's George Vradenberg again. Strong personality, strong sets of beliefs, but very gregarious, uh, very open, uh, very congenial, very uh, accessible. Um, uh, you know, a very, very strong uh, personality, but a strong set of beliefs. And uh, and uh, to my late teen uh, sort of uh, sort of mindset, uh, very smart and very informed. You're listening to Wish We Were Here from KRCC. Stay with us.
From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. On this episode of Wish We Were Here, we're looking back at a short-lived libertarian academy just north of Colorado Springs called the Freedom School, and its eccentric founder and director, Robert Lefebvre. As time went on, the Freedom School grew, and so too did Lefebvre's influence. By the early 1960s, hundreds of students had been exposed to his ideas at the Mountain Campus. Large donations poured in from individuals like the textile magnate Roger Milliken and Rose Wilder Lane, the prominent libertarian daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, author of Little House on the Prairie. In the winter of 1963, Lefebvre parlayed the growing success of the Freedom School to convene a historic meeting of influential libertarian thinkers. It was called the Frontistery and it included visits and lectures by Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises. All these people gather in a kind of libertarian Woodstock. It was around this time, says journalist Mark Ames, that a young Charles Koch attended the Freedom School while on a break from his graduate studies in nuclear engineering at MIT. And according to a 1965 New York Times article, Koch was so affected by his time at the Freedom School that he changed his major from nuclear engineering to chemical engineering, so he wouldn't be as likely to work for the government. Here's Brian Doherty, who interviewed Koch for his 2007 book, Radicals for Capitalism. I would say what it meant to, what Lefebvre meant to Charles and to a lot of the people, you know, of that era who, who went and learned from Lefebvre was it, it unified their sort of vague sense that there was something about big government they didn't like in, uh, you know, an overarching moral superstructure you know he sort of pinned down well what what is it about government that we don't like well it's that government uh is force you know government is this institution uh, that claims to itself the uh legal and moral right to use force against people to to tax them to regulate them to you know tell them what they can and cannot do to lock them up under certain circumstances and uh and your being against this you know the sort of his message to to people like the young charles coke is not it's not reactionary, it's not evil, it doesn't make you, you know, it's not just because oh, you're some greedy industrialist who doesn't want to be taxed and regulated. By the summer of 1964, Charles Koch had become a trustee of the Freedom School. He can be seen standing next to Robert Lefebvre in a photo at the groundbreaking for a new building on the Freedom School campus in 1965. Lefebvre had big plans for expanding the Freedom School. And by the mid-60s, he was actively raising money to turn the school into a more traditional, year-round campus called Rampart College. Butler Schaefer became a teacher at the Freedom School in 1966, right as it was becoming Rampart College. What Lefebvre was desirous of doing was to have a setting where, at least initially, people could come out and study at, at the at the outset, it would be study economics and also history, and get an undergraduate degree, and then ultimately, uh, say, a master's degree in economics or history. The idea being that there were so few programs in the country where you could where you could do that. Not surprisingly, it wasn't long before Rampart College, which was not an accredited institution, ran into trouble with the state. They got confronted by the state of Colorado, which said, no, there are statutes, you can't offer degrees unless you have all kinds of systems set up, all you know, library facilities and this, that, and the other, everything but a football team, I guess. And as the school began to grow, so too did the skeptical eye of the media. The Colorado Springs Free Press, 
the newspaper started by the union employees from the Gazette Telegraph when R.C. Hoyles took it over and fired them in 1947, printed an entire special issue devoted to debunking the ideas of the Freedom School. National media took note as well. Here's an editorial from the April 19, 1963 edition of Time magazine. Almost anywhere in the U.S., the prospect of a new $5 million college would bring nothing but cheers. Not here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Last week, businessmen in the pine-covered foothills of the Rockies were bitterly divided over the proposed construction of an institution to be called Rampart College. The school, complained one director of the Chamber of Commerce, would be about as welcome in Colorado Springs as a skunk at a family picnic. The reason for the ruckus and the media the weren't the only ones Raymond watching. Cyrus Hoyles, a declassified FBI file shows that the agency had been actively tracking the Freedom School and Lefebvre, who had once been an FBI informant himself. And the problems continued to mount. Here's historian Will Schultz. They never got as many students as they would hope. Uh, it was not like there were thousands of people streaming to the Freedom School and then to Rampart College. So it became difficult for them to cover costs that way. Then, of course, there was the very strong opposition from certain people in Colorado Springs. Then there was also certain uh, natural disasters, uh, a mudslide uh, that damaged a lot of the, uh, the property of the Freedom School. The flood and mudslide occurred on June 16, 1965, after a torrential 14-inch downpour over the period of five hours. The damage it caused proved a major setback in Lefebvre's efforts to grow the school. And it didn't help that some of the ideas and characters associated with the newly renamed Rampart College began to veer into increasingly marginal territory. James J. Martin, who would later rise to prominence as an outspoken Holocaust denier, was part of the faculty. In 1966, the school's Rampart Journal published an article by Martin's close associate, Harry Elmer Barnes. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has cited Barnes' article as an important early moment in the history of Holocaust denial in America. Here's Mark Ames. The Rampart Journal is one of the first major sort of um, publications that starts to promote the idea that the Holocaust is a myth. Meanwhile, the broader libertarian movement was beginning to shift toward the mainstream, and Lefebvre's unorthodox ideas and checkered past were starting to seem increasingly out of place. By the end of 1968, Rampart College had become financially unsustainable. Lefebvre shut down the campus, and in January of 1969, he sold the property to Frontier Boys Village, a Christian organization for at-risk children. Lefebvre left Colorado Springs for Santa Ana, California, where his mentor R.C. Hoyles had retired. He drifted out to California, where he continued to run the Rampart College name for a while. Um, he had to, uh, when he would send out mailers, he had to note that, you know, closing down the campus in Colorado Springs doesn't mean that the Freedom School is out of business. You know, it's still a going concern. Uh, and so it became kind of a mail order operation. He, he kind of ran it out of um, an office building in Santa Ana. People would request uh, literature, libertarian literature. He would send it back out to them. Lefebvre continued to promote ideas of radical individualism and resistance to all forms of taxation and governmental authority. 
But as libertarianism began to coalesce into a force in American politics, he largely sat on the sidelines. Charles and David Koch, arguably Lefebvre's most influential students, went on to become major players in the mainstreaming of libertarianism. But unlike Lefebvre, who wanted nothing to do with government of any kind, the Kochs used their substantial means to bring libertarian ideas into American politics, a fact which has been well documented by the New Yorker's Jane Mayer in articles and in her 2016 book, Dark Money. The Kochs became heavily involved in numerous libertarian policy organizations and the fledgling Libertarian Party, which first ran a candidate for president in 1972. In 1974, Charles Koch founded the Cato Institute, and in 1980, Charles's brother David Koch ran for vice president on the libertarian ticket. According to author Brian Doherty, Lefebvre's philosophy was fundamentally at odds with this type of political engagement. That kind of thing Lefebvre wouldn't have wanted anything to do with because it involved trying to get a vote to run government, and running government is, is essentially immoral. And, and from that point on, the libertarian movement became more political, like actually trying to mesh with the wheels of power, engage government, you know, try to tell government officials, you know, how they should do things. These are all things that Lefebvre would have thought were a waste of time. Over the course of the 70s and 80s, Lefebvre became an outsider to the movement he had helped shape. He did maintain a presence to some extent on the right, mentoring young people, speaking at freedom movements, supper clubs, and sharing his ideas with whomever would listen. But without the Freedom School, he was, in many ways, right back where he started. Mark Ames again. So Lefebvre just winds up becoming a kind of a traveling pitchman for the rest of his for the rest of his life, traveling around in his car, sort of like you know when he was traveling around by car for the I Am cult in the 30s and, uh, through 1940, except that he didn't close his eyes, you know, and float around. Uh, and he described he traveled around, hawking his tapes, hawking his books. Um, he still had old segregationist right-wing reactionaries like Milliken inviting him out to South Carolina and paying paying uh, Lefebvre enough money to survive. He continued to write books as well, most of which failed to get much recognition. In 1976, he published a young adult novel loosely based on an odd relationship he'd had with an adolescent girl in the late 1960s. The book was called Lift Her Up Tenderly. It's described as a free market Lolita and it's based, LaFay says, it's based on his own experience, and it's about a free market guru and his 12-year-old um, stepdaughter um, who is constantly, um, uh, you know, tempting him sexually um, while he's trying to work on his free market theories. And, and the way he kind of gets over his sexual temptation is, is lecturing her on the evils of taxes and the evils of fiat money. <laughs> and government regulations and stuff like that. And um, it's, a, it's, it's such a bizarre book, I can't tell you. Here's historian Will Schultz. He was, he was both tragic and absurd. You know, he, he clearly had these pretensions of being a great political philosopher, you know, being not, not just a great political philosopher, a transformative one. He had the quote about how previously philosophers have tried to create the perfect society. We are trying to create the perfect individual. So, you know, echoes there, uh, you know, earlier statements that, you know, about philosophers interpreting the world. The point is to change it. Lefebvre wanted to change the world and he wanted to do that through creating this new philosophy. And I 
I don't think he succeeded in either. Lefebvre died in a motel room of an emphysema attack while driving across the country in 1986. Aside from the Freedom School and the students he influenced, his intellectual legacy consists of some seldom-read tracks, a trove of archived audio commentaries, and a number of books, some published, some not, with titles like This Bread is Mine and You Can't Keep a Great Uncle Down. But despite his relative obscurity today, many students of the libertarian movement regard Lefebvre as an important figure. He may not have had the intellectual gravitas of an Ayn Rand or a Friedrich Hayek, but he was a true believer, and he did his part to spread the gospel of freedom. He, he was a popularizer of, of others' ideas. You know, he, he was an educator in libertarian principles, not an innovator. Brian Doherty, senior editor at Reason Magazine again. He did work in an era when these ideas were not at all respectable. Not at all respectable. Like nowadays... You know, it's not like libertarians are ruling the roost, but it's sort of an understood thing that, oh, yeah, libertarian ideas are, are part of the mix. Like there are Republican politicians like the Pauls who actually are kind of libertarian. It's not a completely crazy set of ideas. Lefebvre tried to keep these ideas alive in a time when to believe this stuff was to be a complete, you know, lunatic. He did what the libertarians of the 40s, 50s, and 60s intended to do. They had a very monk-like sense of their mission. Um, it wasn't that they were going to change the political world. It was that there was a set of ideas that just sort of had to be kept nurtured and kept alive through a dark ages. And, uh, and he succeeded in doing that and uh, spread them to some people who, who helped spread them even further. George Vredenberg, who attended the Freedom School in the early 60s, says he no longer ascribes to the most radical anti-government ideas of Lefebvre, but he still remembers him as an inspiring and formative figure from his past. You know, as you're growing up as a teenager, late teenager, uh, early 20s, uh, people with passion who have a view of the world and how to make the world a better place are appealing. And he was he fell in that category, uh, and not as a um, lecture-ish type, uh, but a garrulous you know, a true believer, but a true believer with a, uh, with a sense of humor and a sense of perspective. Butler Schaefer, who studied under and then taught alongside Lefebvre at the Freedom School, remained friends with Lefebvre until his death. The two had both ended up in Southern California. He even helped Lefebvre's wife plan the memorial service. To him, Lefebvre was a good man, and the school he created was an intellectual refuge. Schaefer says the world today could use a bit more of what Lefebvre had to offer. The way you really learn much about anything is through continuing to refine the quality of your questions. And I think this is what the Rampart College experience at least did for me. It took you to different levels of questioning. What's the nature of life itself? What's the nature of life in human society? How, do, how can we live together in ways that aren't destructive? Um, and continue to to push that because you don't you don't see it in the the main culture, you really don't. You don't see it certainly don't see it in the political structure. What with this what H. L. Mencken called the carnival of bunkum that has been loosed upon us in recent months over whether we're going to have Trump or Hillary or Bernie and so forth. It, it requires I think 
the kind of questioning that our traditional culture just doesn't allow for. And Rampart at least encouraged that. buildings need a lot of TLC for us to be able to put kids in them yeah. again. 50 years after the Freedom School closed its doors, the original hand-carved wooden sign still hangs outside Rose Wilder Lane Hall. This is the building where Lefebvre lectured. In photographs from Freedom School brochures, you can see him in blue jeans, a button-up western shirt, and a bolo tie in front of a chalkboard attached to the log wall. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh my god, that smell. Smells good, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An out-of-tune piano and a few half-inflated basketballs have replaced the neat rows of desks that once filled the hall. It's pointedly ironic that this campus, which was once a kind of anti-government utopian experiment, is now in the hands of a public school district. So a lot of their, uh, these buildings back here were either dorms and or um, kitchens, libraries. There, in the back, there was an actual library. Uh, we've got those pictures we can show you. Um, yeah. Stacked, like wall-to-wall -wall books. Very, very educational. <laughs> Perhaps even more ironically, the camp's director, Joe Lee Jones, is fascinated by the Freedom School and wants to restore Liberty Lodge and Rosewilder Lane to their original condition. It would be neat, she thinks, if libertarians could reconnect with this forgotten piece of their history. We just recently started um, conversations with a libertarian group here in Colorado in this in this region uh, about possibly doing a, a conference here uh, for one of their, their annual summits, which we think is actually pretty cool. I mean, this is kind of their foundation, right? So why not? What better place to have that summit? It'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Many people uh, look at a libertarian and wonder if he is a person on the extreme right or a person on the extreme left. I'd like to suggest that a libertarian is a person in the extreme middle. And that's where we are. We want to understand what the truth is and work to make a maximization of human well-being. Thanks very much. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Public Media in Colorado Springs. Music in this episode was composed by Sam Erickson of the band We Are Not a Glumlot. Craig Richardson voiced readings from the Freedom School literature. Music beds under those readings are from the Lawrence Welk Show. Many thanks to programming director Jeff Beery and general manager Tammy Turwelp. To our interns Margot Letterer and Tyler Hill. To the special collections departments of the Pikes Peak Library District and Colorado College. And thanks, finally, to Jolie Jones and the Douglas County School District for the tour of the former Freedom School campus. Thanks also to the Mises Institute for use of some of the Robert Lefebvre audio heard in this episode. Full disclosure, Noel Black serves alongside George Vradenberg as a trustee of the B. Vradenberg Foundation. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And while you're there, consider leaving a review. You can also stream this episode and see a slideshow of photos at krcc.org. For Wish We Were Here, I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell.